Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Gosh, it's great to have you on the podcast. Great to be on with you, Ryan. Thanks for okay. having me. Uh, Jackie Robinson, obviously, is an iconic figure. A lot's said about him every year with Jackie Robinson Day and stuff like this. Um, why a new another book about him? Well, you know, um, personally, I've, I've been kind of around the Jackie story quite a bit in my life um, through my years at Sports Illustrated and then in uh, about 2012, 2013, I did a pretty long piece on Rachel Robinson, Jackie's widow. And it was it was during that time and the sort of reporting around it and the aftermath where I sort of had continued a professional relationship with um, Rachel and her daughter, Sharon, and, and son, David, um, that I began to sort of see that and believe that there was there was another story to be told here or told in a little bit of a different way. Um, and that it was so that would that would. That would be the overall genesis for me to try to look at it in a different way and not try to do necessarily a cradle to grave um, biography, which have been done and been done very well. I'm not, not, they've been done wonderfully, but that really wasn't what I was after. And, and the other piece, Ryan, it's just, you know, the world has changed. Um, there's a lot of books about Abraham Lincoln too, right? Um, when, when we, the way we look at Robinson, wherever you might sit, wherever a person might sit uh, in their beliefs and their perspective it's going to be a little different in in 2022 than it was in 20 2005 or 2011 2016 we change and therefore our perspective changes a little bit too absolutely we have a a lot of podcasts on history and so i always love hearing authors and what they're trying to capture because it's impossible for a history book a book to tell a complete story much less, but 10 books can't tell it. And so there's always angles. And as we go along, we, we find new evidence about other things. And so um, there's continual stories to be told, even though the original story might be dead because we don't fully understand it. Our perspective around it changes. So. Yeah. No, couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, I think with somebody like Robinson, um, he, he's a, he's a, he's obviously no longer alive and hasn't been for 50 years, but he, in another sense, he's a living, breathing figure, factor in our, in our consciousness, in our lives, in the way he's taught and in the sort of realization. I remember looking at my daughter's um, AP history, U.S. Gov book um, from a few years ago. And, and the first it's civil rights movement, right? So it's one of these books which sort of boils everything down to, you know, a couple of pages that has to, it's encyclopedic in that way. Civil rights movement, the first line is in 1947, Jackie Robinson played baseball for the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers or something to that effect. And then talks about how subsequently the military was um, integrated and, and, and all that. And obviously then the fifties the and the civil rights march and all that. So um, it, 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 I think there's been a renewed recognition of, of how critical um, Robinson was, not just of course in sports, but outside of sports to American and, and even global society. When did Robinson realize his impact? It's a, it's a good question. I, I honestly, I think he realized it and embraced it right from the get-go, from, from the moment he was, or, or I should say he recognized the opportunity from the moment he was, he was signed in 1945 by Branch Rickey. If you look at 1946, which is, so my book is, is through the four seasons of Jackie Robinson, and those look at four specific years in his life, um, but they're also metaphorically the spring, summer, autumn, and winter of Robinson's public life. And the first year that, that, I, that I look at is 1946, when he's playing in Montreal for the Montreal Royals, the year before he would come to Brooklyn. And um, that was really the year he's in Canada, with it, which didn't have the same black-white tension, um, and, and not to mention legalized segregation, but even just the, the, that racial divide did not exist in Canada. It was more around 
religious or French English um, was more of a dividing line in Montreal at that time. But he is he is the the only black player for a little while. He had a, a teammate who was for a few weeks who was also black, but for much of the year the only black player in an entirely white league playing a lot of their games, most of their games in the United States, their, their non home games in Baltimore and Buffalo and Syracuse and such. And when when he first comes up to bat that first season, uh, 1946, not in the major leagues yet, playing against the Jersey City Giants, minor league game, it's completely packed. And the African-American newspapers are writing, you know, the hopes of 18 million Americans are riding on his back, right? So there's no way to not know your impact from that moment, from those early spring trainings, from the first time getting into into, uh, uniform, in an all-white league, Robinson was acutely aware, and and absolutely he and Rachel, who was with him the whole time, embraced that opportunity and that responsibility. How did he deal with the pressure so well? You know, I think that he... I, I do say, you know, and it's someone, sometimes a cliche when you say, oh, the spouse had a lot to do with it. But I do think in this case, it was really true. He was, he was a man of, of certain temper, um, which, which came out a lot later in his career. Um, and not, not so much later. I just mean it came out a lot later in his career, um, seeing that temper. And actually, he had shown it on the field uh, in the Negro Leagues in 1945, where they, they would say, oh, he's up to his neck in every game. Um Rachel was an extremely stabilizing, rational force who would absolutely engage a very intelligent woman with her own career, go on to become a health administrator and teacher at Yale and all that. She put all that aside and was entirely engaged in sort of keeping Jackie focused. He did that. Branch Rickey very much helped him. Um, Branch would always say, sit in the boat, sit in the boat. And that's what he meant by that is when there's a storm all around you, and the waters are really rough. Just sit down in the boat. We're going to get to the other side. <clears throat> yeah, he listened to those people, and, and he had his own resolve. And I think that, you know, the pressure was, I, I just mentioned the sort of hopes and dreams of people who were rooting for him. Of course, there are then the other people who were absolutely not rooting for him and were vicious in their verbal attacks and occasional physical, atta- physical attacks. But Robinson had had a real confidence. And I think that Another piece of how he was able to do it, he was such a superior athlete um, across all, you know, great football player, track, basketball. He had a, a real confidence in his ability and his ability to to succeed and play with the guys he was playing with and be, be better than just about all of them. Yeah, so what was, not in the stands, but in the league itself, the composition of people that were pro-Jackie versus anti-Jackie? It was a little both, um, and, and I'd say that the, the people who were sort of anti-Jackie came in in a, in a broad swath of some people were just flat-out racist. They, they didn't want to play with a, a black man on their team, um, and, and they might have been, you know, had family that, that didn't like it and, and people in their lives who didn't like it. Um, a lot of people were just suspicious of it. They'd never done it. They were, they were uncomfortable, and they had to become comfortable with it. And then there were people who just didn't want him to take their jobs away, not, and not meaning necessarily Robinson himself, but he was a whole new crop of talent of people who anybody knew they were good enough to play in the major leagues. Like anybody who didn't was just saying that, right? Obviously not every player in the Negro Leagues could play in the, in the major leagues or vice versa, but there were many, many players of the ability to play in the major leagues, many black players. And so all of a sudden now it's, it's hard enough to get a job um, in the major leagues, you can have a, an influx of people um, that present a danger to your to your livelihood. So there was that hesitation as well. Um, and then the people who were rooting for him, well, first of all, his teammates after day one, um, where he had an extraordinary game, uh, were, were 100% rooting for him for the same way that teammates root for one another now, right? Um, he, he helped them win. He made them a better team, period. And I also think that to watch Robinson and watch how he went about things, especially in those early years, but honestly, all the way through, you, you just couldn't help but respect him. You know, there, there were when he became a Dodger, there were plenty of Giants fans who hated Jackie Robinson, but only because, you know, he beat him. You know, the way um, they, they hated Pee Wee Reese, too, and they hated Duke Snyder, too. Um, guys who, 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 would, who would 
help the Dodgers and beat beat the rival Giants. Uh, so, so I think that that he he really won people over, and and after a few years, it was really just the people who were sort of entrenched in in certain racist beliefs, um, and and they, you know, Jackie helped in the path to be fewer and fewer of them, but they were certainly there, and obviously they're long after Robinson retired in 1956. That that was the core um, of people who who continued to root against him. Uh, okay, in. One more question about the the Montreal Royals. Unpack that story. Like, how did he get there? So it was a kind of natural thing. He was signed in 1945 by Branch Rickey um, and the Dodgers organization. And as I mentioned, Robinson was an, an exceptionally good athlete um, and, and a, 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 a really good running back for UCLA. He would have, if there had been a, an Olympics, um, he, he would have – almost certainly been in the 1940 Olympics. His brother, Mac, um, finished finished right behind Jesse Owens in 1936. Um, so he's an extremely good athlete, but he was a pretty unpolished baseball player. He, he'd only played, he hadn't played his last year at UCLA. He'd only played 45 games in the Negro Leagues. Um, he, he probably wasn't quite ready for the major leagues at that time, just as a ball player. And you saw it a little bit in Montreal. He ended up having a terrific season, um, but, but he would, in the early going, he'd throw to the wrong base, miss the cutoff man, make sort of mistakes that guys who are much younger than him weren't making because, um, white ball players had access to a level of coaching and instruction that he simply never had. So he needed to sort of get better uh, as a ball player, but it was also, and, and you talk about realizing his impact earlier, it was a new game for, for Robinson. He, as I said, he was he was known as an athlete when he walked around campus on UCLA. People knew him um, in, in the early 40s. But when he was in Montreal, he, he became this different figure representing an entire movement, sort of, and an entire uh, level part of society. And the way it would be that when he went out, people would come and crowd around him, the way that it was his name that they kept screaming at the ballpark and his... Uh, being announced that that sent the crowd uh, in, into greater attention and all the media coverage. It, it was crucial to have a period for him to sort of adapt uh, in a little bit of a lesser uh, scrutiny or a lesser intense environment um, in Montreal, which, as I said, was in Canada, so the temperature was not quite as hot around racial issues. Um, to, to prepare himself for what was awaiting him in, in Brooklyn to play with, you know, at the major league level and under even greater scrutiny um, from major league media. When you look back from maybe this period to, oh, at least probably the mid-60s, it feels like there's these cultural phenomenons that are happening. And I, I'm curious if you ever looked at fandom if you will, from that period of time, because you watch back some of these Elvis Presley things or uh, the Beatles or Marilyn Monroe and about Jackie. And it makes me think about this, just how public sentiment seemed to just swell over these issues and became um, uh, superstars in a way that I'm not sure we have stars today, but I'm not sure if they're, if they're talked about and thought about um, equally across the culture as maybe they were back then, because back then maybe there were just less news coverage and so less things to talk about. Have you, have you thought about that, any? Yeah, no, it's a really good point. And, and I actually, I, I did a book uh, previously just to tie into this on, on Joe DiMaggio in 1941, when we were about to go to go to war. We, war was, of course, going on in Europe, and we were about to enter. Um, and he, he had his great hitting streak. And the way that the, the nation paid attention to it, um, in a way that I don't think we'd pay attention to a baseball player today, such as Aaron Judge, right? Got a lot of attention, but not not at that level. Um, and I think in that time, in the times you talk about of, of Elvis and and Marilyn and, and even JFK to some degree, although President is a different different breed, but still a cult of personality around him. I, there were there were less options. We were less fragmented. You had um, the only. First, there were no TV stations. Then there were only a few TV stations. Um, there was a limited number of national radio. There was it, it, there just wasn't as much stuff. Now um, there's just there's 
because of the internet and all the you know good access and great things about it, it certainly dilutes um, fame and dilutes um, any any attention just as it dilutes like TV ratings for every show and every sports game. Period. Um, and and there was just more attention paid paid to those things. Not to mention that it was a time. And there have been other times, certainly, of course, in, in American history, but you as a historian could might have, have even stronger thoughts on this. But it, it was a time of a lot of activity and changing. You know, we've been in war, which was its own huge dominating element, and now we're coming out of it. Um, this period of Black exclusion beginning to to to, to change and, and that whole movement, it was, it was a very um, sort of intense and alive time in American society. And I think that that also helped put more attention on, on people. Oh, okay. Let's talk about um, the next season, 1949. NL MVP. Yeah. Like 342, 16 home runs, something like that. Yeah. That year, uh, just to give from a baseball standpoint for a moment, he hit 342, um, stole 39 bases. He, he, that year, he hit better than 340, stole more than 35 bases, had more than 65 extra base hits. Nobody has done that since. All the great players we've had, Mays, Mantle, Mike Trout, Aaron Judge, you, you name them. Nobody has, has done that. Um, so that gives you a sense of he – was, he was just the best player on the planet uh, that year. And if you go back and look at sort of advanced metrics uh, of today and advanced statistics, it just bears that out. He, he was the best player alive. Uh, and, and so that was the, the figurative summer in my fourth season. And I think that, that that piece gets lost a little bit, just how good of a player he was. Everybody knows he was a good player. But he was that year and then for a couple of years afterwards, but particularly that year, an absolutely dominant, dominant player. And and I think you can't – that's not just a baseball issue. That's also a larger issue because if he'd come along and been a good player, but, you know, just fine, little better than average kind of player, of course there would have been an impact. Of course it would have been, oh, my God, breaking the color barrier. But not like this. He was the player, black, white, yellow, otherwise, that you couldn't take your eyes off of. He was the player that made made it go. So that that blurred color lines in itself because of how good he was. So, so I, I focused on that year partly for that reason, also because it was the first year um, where he, his first couple of years, he had agreed to sort of not fight back, to turn the other cheek uh, when he was hit by pitches, and nobody in in baseball was hit with a pitch more often than Jackie Robinson over his first two seasons. Um, when he heard all the different things he heard, um, and he said before the 1949 season, they better be rough on me because I'm going to be rough on them. And he kind of decided, no more. I'm not going to take it anymore. And we saw him change. Um, and we saw it in the results. He'd been a very good player the first two years, but now he moved to another level where he stayed for several more years. And um, so you saw you saw a new Jackie. One, one of the things that to, just for the book that I was looking to do in these four seasons, I wanted each um, each period to be a distinctly different one. So it was he was a different person, different protagonist in 1949 than he had been in 1946, while of course being the same person, but 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 being very different in many critical ways. Right, because no one, and that, that's the hard part in history, right, is that if you go back and you, you, you study someone, they can have events or just whatever that changes who they are or what they're about, and so it's kind of hard to make them a you know a, a, a wooden figure because there are things that, that change and mold them and i'm sure for the time from 46 to 49 it'd be if he was the same person it would almost be disappointing right because you'd want to see something come from him whether it's uh, you wouldn't not necessarily bad stuff but it would make sense if it was bad or good or whatever but you'd want to see a, a character if you will develop because that's just how that's how life is and so you're uh, going into 49 you're saying that it kind of had this resolve to um take take it turn the other cheek if you will but then dish it out on the field and uh, did, did that garner the respect of those who were throwing at him or did it not really do much for them no i think it did i think it changed a, a sort of a collective uh stepping back uh, and he was he suddenly became a guy you didn't want to play again like play again take for for you can never take the racial element entirely out but for 
a couple of sentences here. Let's just imagine it wasn't there. He was still the guy you didn't want to play against, period. Whatever, you know, they called him the black tie Cobb. Um, and Cobb right. had his baggage in different ways. But one thing they had in common was how aggressive they could be. And he came in hard and he was the he was the instigator. He was the guy who who, you know, he unsettled the defense, he unsettled the pitcher. Um, and, and that and again, that wins a certain respect and it wins a certain attention from the opposition. I'm looking at the 1949 MVPs. So you have Jackie Robinson, and then in the AL you have Ted Williams, which is two just iconic players. Yes, Ted beat him barely at batting average at 343 versus 342. Um, obviously, he hit a lot more home runs than Jackie did, 43 to 16. But Jackie had 36 stolen bases to uh, to Ted's one. <laughs> so it's uh, but two. But if you go back through there, just looking at this this list of iconic players, I mean of MVPs. You know, you've got Yogi Berra right there, Stan Musial. There's all kinds, Joe DiMaggio that are just before him. There's all kinds of just crazy names that you kind of forget that all these guys were in the same era. Yeah, what an incredible, incredible, incredible era. The other thing I just want to say about, and, and there's never been a better hitter than Ted Williams, right? So he was, uh, in, in so many years he played, he, he was the dominant batter. He and DiMaggio were there. Um, Jackie was also a, a key defensive player. Um, he was not particularly graceful out there, but he was all, he was very um, intense and and caught the ball. He, he didn't make a lot of mistakes, um, and with a force on on defense in a way that Williams just wasn't. He didn't. He kind of played the outfield, caught the ball to a hit to him, a few memorable big throws, and all that. Obviously, a great athlete, but um, part of part of Robinson's impact, of course, on the base path. But also in the field as well as at bat. But what what an you're right. What an incredible era that whole era. And then the, you know, just after that when in came Aaron and Mays and Mantle, um, going from the sort of, uh, yeah, you know, Musil, William, DiMaggio, Barra era. Just just a, a time of of absolute uh, elite of the elite of the elite Hall of Fame ball players. And now I want to go back to something you said earlier because I'm looking at his batting average. <clears throat> by by year. So in uh 47 he bat 297, 296, and then he goes 342. And earlier you were saying that he didn't have kind of the conventional upbringing. So how much batting experience does he really have in 1949 when he wins the MVP? Well, here's here's one thing that, that, that really stood out of me when I uncovered it, and I hadn't seen it elsewhere. Um he so so he he hadn't had much, right? Um he just had He'd had two years of the of the of the major leagues, 47, 48. Before that, he'd had one year with Montreal. And then he'd had his the uh, the Negro Leagues and college time, which is all, you know, adds up to something. But a lot of guys would come into the major leagues at 23 instead of 28 when Jackie came in. And, you know, they played in on minor league circuits for six years already. Um facing a diet of pitchers who obviously were not major league pitchers, but many of whom were on their way to the major leagues. Before the, in spring training at 49, George Sisler, who was a great batter of like yet an era before, more like the Cobb era, he hit 420 in, in the 1920s. Um, and Branch Rickey loved Sisler, thought he was a great teacher. Wherever Ricky went, he brought Sisler. And he'd worked with Duke Snyder. And before 49, he worked with Robinson. And he did a different thing. But one thing he said to him was always expect the fastball. Then you can adjust the, uh, adjust to the, um, breaking stuff, the slowest stuff, but think fastball all the time. It's great advice. It's also, I, I would guess you've heard it. I've heard it. <laughs> the, you you hear it from, from very early age these days, right? It, it's not a huge piece of, of revelation, uh, but it, it but it's critical. And Robinson had never heard that, had never thought about that. And to me, that that really illuminated how little coaching he had gotten. That he got that at that age. Uh, about 30 years old, and that it really made a difference. It really helped him, and he credited um, Sisla with, with helping him take another go to another level. So 49 is the only year he wins the MVP, if I'm correct on that, I think. What, what made that season special? Um, obviously, there's a, there's a special because of who he is, but just in the season, what were some of the moments that made it a special season? Well, there are a lot of moments on the field, right, where they were aware that this was going to be a, um, a really, a really great season. And I'm able to get into some of those 
the one of the advantages, Ryan, of, of, of focusing on four seasons is that you can get into each of them in sort of greater detail and, and expose and, and show things in that way than you might be able to if you're doing a book to cover absolutely everything. Um, there was there was one game against uh, the Phillies and Schoolboy Rao, who is um, a veteran pitcher. Um, he was actually in the, in the uh, dugout at this point, heckling Robinson um, and and asking the pitcher on the on whose name is now. Sorry, I could get it in a second, but uh, it, it, it sort of egging on the pitcher to, to brush him back. And Robinson turned and confronted Schoolboy Rao. Um, and that was something you would never have seen earlier on. The, the, the umpire went and got between them, and it was okay. And, and Schoolboy was a big guy. He was, um, you know, uh, a real figure. But that was that was a, something that we saw there. Um, the, 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 1949 was also a, an interesting year, and this relates to his performance on the field, but also to where he's going with the societal figure. He was called down to D.C. to go testify before the House on American Activities. Um, because Paul Robinson, who was a prominent Black leader at that time, had been an athlete, now a baritone singer, um, had made some comments about how he wouldn't join the military. He didn't think that a, given the way um, African-Americans were treated in the United States, he nor any other Black person would join the military um, to fight for the country against countries such as Russia, which didn't have that kind of segregation. Well, Jackie Robinson didn't agree with this. He 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 was sort of like, okay, that's fine. It, it, it's logical if that's your position. That's that's fine. But you're not speaking for me. You're not speaking for all black people. Um, I and Robinson, who had faced some pretty unpleasant racism in the military, remained nonetheless absolutely staunchly behind the military, um, pro-American in that sense. And so he went down and he testified against. Partly against Robeson, partly, I'm not going to get into all of it, but a, quite a nuanced um, presentation. And he came back that night and and like kind of took over a game a few a few hours later against the Cubs at Ebbets Field, and it was also super indicative. Um, and the, the the writers in the papers were saying how at any moment Robinson was able to take over a game. As soon as he was on first base, things got disrupted. You could see the game begin to change. Sometimes he stole, sometimes he didn't. He created a, an inordinate number of balks. Um, so he'd be on third base dancing towards home. That was a huge thing to to steal home. Carl Ferrillo, who was often up in those situations, got hit by pitches a lot. He did a lot of different things to impact the game and change the game when you saw him on a nightly basis that even beyond what the statistics reveal. Yeah, looking at the um, stolen bases stats for those two years, I mean, for, that, for, that, for the uh, AL and uh, NL, um, the top stolen base of MVP vote getters, I'll say, um, had 18 from the American League. And then in the National League, the second one was 26, he had 37. So his, 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 he was stealing bases far beyond anyone that was even close to him. Yeah, and, and one, thing, one thing just to point out for listeners is he also got caught a fair amount in those early years. And that was okay. That was okay with him. It was okay with Grant Rickey. It was disrupt, get out there, even go in loud to second base. It's okay, um, which sometimes modern statistics might argue against that, but it was a big part of what he was doing, a big part of putting the sort of fear into the pitchers. When you go later in his career, he still remained an extremely dominant baseball uh, runner, great base runner, although he'd lost some of his sheer speed. Even in later years, you know, so you look at like um, what, a few years later, 53, say, he stole only 17 bases. That was still a high number of those days. But he's only caught four times. He changed his approach. He became much more judicious, much more careful. And that was by intention. Um, and, and so early on, he was sort of putting the pressure, putting the pressure. I know I'm going to get caught sometime, but I'm going to do it this way. And he was also really smart. I looked into it. He... he um, he never. He only got caught twice the whole year out of being caught sixteen times in nineteen forty nine when the Dodgers were trailing, only twice. So he he took a gamble at times when you could afford to take a gamble and send a message. Um, so you, the more you look into his base running, you realize in addition to all his skills, he was a very intelligent base runner um, and very purposeful and intentional about the way he went about things. Yeah, this one more thing on the MV, on the uh, MVP. It, 
if I'm looking at these stats right, that basically the, the percentage of uh, votes that he got to win the MVP was very similar to what Ted got. Ted might got a little bit higher percentage for the American League, but it was very similar. So it wasn't a close, had to kind of eke it out. It looks like both of them were the the favorite and they were, it, it wasn't a contested thing earlier. Into, um, it is earlier you're talking about when he gets into the league, it's good to have someone who's not only there, but they're, they're, they're really good. It kind of puts a lot of the narratives away. The same thing might be true here about this, this MVP voting, which is it kind of puts the narrative away. Not only is he good, he's that good. Yeah, no, no question. I mean, in the National League that year, the other guy who had a really great season was Stan Musial, right? And and Stan Musial was essentially an MVP candidate in the National League most years that he played. He was, he was just that good of a player. But th- but there was no controversy about about Robinson winning um, in '49. There was there was none whatsoever. He was you know he was clearly the best player. Um, the Dodgers were the best team and won the pennant, uh, and, and so there was you know and, and he would he would finish. Um, in the top sort of seven of MVP a couple more times. He got MVP votes um, in six more seasons, I want to say. Um, and so so he was he was always in the conversation, um, but that was the year that he really, really um, dominated. You know, and, and the guy who he lost MVP to a few times, um, or other guys, but was Roy Campanella, an African-American teammate who came on and would win three MVPs in, in seven seasons or something like that. Okay, um, let's talk about his last season. And, and why cover that? Why the last season? Well, so like that season, 1956, his last season. Um, so a, a couple of things. 1955 was a season sort of highlighted in Dodger lore and baseball lore, the one year that the Dodgers actually beat the Yankees in the World Series. Um, and so it's remembered a lot in, in the sort of history around the team. And, and, and the history around the team in that, era is the history of Robinson's team. Obviously other great players, but it was Jackie Robinson's team. Um, 55, though, was a really difficult year for Robinson. Uh, he didn't play that well. He wasn't getting along with manager Walt Austin. He was actually not even on the field in game seven of the 1955 World Series. The only time he didn't play in a World Series game. So Don Hoke, a journeyman third baseman, was the first guy to run over. At that point, Robinson was playing third base at that point in his career. Um, and so there was already talk before the game, before the season of 56, and he was, Robinson had gained weight. He wasn't physically what he had been, uh, that maybe he was done. And what I found really almost moving in a way is the way he sort of came back and had, you know, if you look at the numbers, he was not anything close in, in 1956, his final season. He was not close to the kind of years we're talking about in 49 or 52 or 53 when he was a, such a force. But he came back to have a really, really strong season, much better than 1955, um, used a little differently, uh, played various positions. But it, it was sort of like, I'm not going gently, I'm going to play here, and I'm going to show you that I'm Jackie Robinson still. Um, and and it, was a, it was a powerful year to, to, to witness. Um, and I felt like the, that athletic element was important. He would be diagnosed with diabetes shortly after that season. It's, it's almost certain, although... I don't say it for sure because we don't know for sure, but it's almost certain that he had um, sort of pre-diabetic conditions and symptoms. Um, he had circulation issues in his legs. He was battling a lot to, to play the way he did. And there's a stretch in that late summer, in addition to the overall stats, there's about a month and a half, a good stretch, when he's hitting well over 300, stealing bases, basically making them overtake and and put some distance between them and the Braves, who were at that point the second-best team. Um, and it was like sort of vintage Jackie um, at that time. The the other element, uh, Ryan, I wanted to look at was it's now 1956, and he already has an eye out to his life after baseball. He's begun a relationship with Dr. King. He um, talked about different different issues. Again, the way his teammate Roy Campanella didn't talk about issues at all, and they just had a different view on it. Um, and so he'd begun to think about what he was going to do after baseball and begun to plant himself into the civil rights movement and to sort of use his platform for a larger mission. So in a number of different ways, it was just um, a pivotal good season to to look at. And you mentioned there's this tension with management. What was going on with that? Well, it's, it's a little bit layered, but um, 
he uh Grant Tricky, who the guy who who signed and brought in Robinson and 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 Robinson loved him. He was like a father to him and also deeply respected him as everybody kind of did. Ricky was beyond the Robinson experiment. He invented the farm system. He he evaluated players uh, in ways that we do now in advanced metrics. He was just so far ahead of the curve and, and such an intelligent guy. Um, and he was kind of forced out by Walter O'Malley, uh, who was, they had been co-owners, co-governors of the team in the late 40s. Um, and O'Malley got kind of a foothold where he could take more um, power. And he pushed pushed Ricky out. And he was always a little bit jealous. O'Malley was himself very forward on, on civil rights, very much behind the Robinson experiment and bringing in other Black players. So on the right side of history, for sure, in that sense. But he resented the credit that, that Ricky got. Um, he's very ego-driven. Um, and he didn't like sharing that spotlight. And and so he, th- he pushed him out and he always viewed players who Ricky had brought in and nurtured, nurtured as uh, Ricky men, he would call them. And so he, he never ha- sort of cottoned on warmly to, to Robinson. Then there was the manager, Walt Alston. So Walter O'Malley and Walt Alston, the two, the two Walts. Um, and Robinson never really respected him so much or never got along that well with him. He, when he was asked um, after the 55 season, he was on a circuit talking about, um, just talking about his career and different things. Somebody asked him to rank his best managers. And he, right after winning the World Series with Walt Austin, he listed the four major league managers that had Austin fourth. He didn't like the way Austin used Sandy Koufax, felt he was monkeying around with him too much when he was this young player coming in and, and had a lot of different issues. So, so that was there. Now, Walt Alston, better or worse, he, he, he won three World Series and came, came to L.A. and was a, a great manager for them. So uh, I'm not choosing sides here, but I am saying that there was a, a, a clear rift. He also felt it was a – I'd found this, which I hadn't seen, but it was a, a, a game in Wrigley Field when Snyder had hit a ball – Duke Snyder for the Dodgers that hit a ball over the Wrigley Field wall and it kind of got trapped in a little netting or wire mesh they had there and bounced in, bounced back into the field. And the umpires called it a double. And Robinson, and this was not so unusual, but he ran out of the dugout where he was seated to, to argue and said, no, it was a home run. It was absolutely a home run. I said, and Austin, who was coaching at third base, didn't come over and support him, which was really galling. Right. Even if and, and Austin this use as well, I thought it was a double. Even so, you go and you protect your best player, the most important player in franchise history. Honestly, any player, any manager, you go over and you protect them, however you do that. But he didn't do that at all. Turned out by pictures in the paper the next day, Robinson was right. It was a home run. But in any case, so there were different points that really made it difficult. And um, so, so uh, yeah, that, that was basically the management issues that he had. And was he forced out? Did he want to go out? I mean, his stats weren't terrible, but they weren't great. What what was his thoughts on playing? Beyond well, the- so what happened in 56, and, and they played the World Series that year against the Yankees, um, and that's also a famous World Series from game five, the Yankees, Don Larson, throw the perfect game. The very next day at Ebbets Field, they're again, nothing, nothing in the 10th. And it's Robinson's hit, the last hit of his career, that drives in the winning run. Uh, the, the Dodgers win win one nothing in the series that tied at three three. They would lose Game Seven to the Yankees the next day. Um, soon after that, Robinson um, took a job with Chock Full of Nuts. Um, he was ready to leave baseball and retire baseball. And and to give you a sense, Ryan, of, of the world at that point, his job is sort of a. VP of Human Resources at Jack Will Nut paid him the same salary that he was making as the star of the Brooklyn Dodgers, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, not getting not quite the salary that they're making today in baseball. Um, so with a, an even move from a financial standpoint. But when he made when he accepted that position, he didn't announce it because he had agreed with Look Magazine that he would reveal this in in a cover story for Look, which was going to come out in uh, January of 1957. In the interim, maybe a month and a half interim or something like that, the Dodgers trade him to the Giants. So they're now trading Jackie Robinson, which is in itself kind of unthinkable, and they're trading him to the arch rival Giants. Um, 
Robinson didn't say anything about having retired. There were a couple of days when he, you know, photographers came up to his home in, in Connecticut and took pictures of him waving a Giants pennant. Um, Robinson got a letter, a telegram from Willie Mays, the young, great young Giants player at that time. But then it came out that he had retired and he wrote a note to Horace Stoneham, the, the owner of the Giants, saying, basically, I appreciate your wanting me, um, but I'm not going to be able to play. I've taken this, this job. Um, so he never reported, never played a game or actually put on a Giants uniform. So it's kind of a mutual way. But but that, you know, as we, if we go on to the final year, the fact that they traded him, Jackie never quite forgave Walter O'Malley for that, among other things. Uh, that that was that was, and and certainly Dodger fans didn't either. It, it's interesting because you you think about it, and you go, how could you trade Jackie Robinson, and uh, obviously the you have the the racial stuff that you might go that might be some of, but then you go, you know, all of the great and iconic players that if they just keep pushing it. They get traded away too. Very few iconic players, no matter what you're trying to accomplish or how much you've done, um, you you almost always, at least on the management side, wear out your welcome. And sometimes on the fandom side, if you don't play well. And so it, it's 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 a weird sports is a weird thing to where, yeah. Even no matter how iconic you are, it's almost impossible to get the Cinderella the the Cinderella ending. I, I remember, uh, you know, if you think back to when Wayne Gretzky was traded. And that was that was probably the one that was oh my god right. Um, but the only thing I say, and that's a hundred percent true, and we've seen it. And there aren't many Derek Jeters around today who play one time. But back then there were. It wasn't you know Stan Musa wasn't getting traded, Ted Williams wasn't getting traded, Roy Campanella wasn't getting traded, Joe DiMaggio wasn't getting traded, Yogi Berra wasn't getting traded. So it's true today, but in that time it wasn't unheard of. Boston, uh, Babe Ruth went and played a, a brief, briefly with the Boston Braves afterward, but it was, but it was not, it was not common. It was, it was a big, big shock when that happened for a player at that level. Again, never mind his pioneering work for a player that level to get traded at that time was, was was much less common than it is today. When we see it, as you point out, across sports with with a lot of frequency. Mm, that's a good point. Okay, last year of his life, obviously, um, it didn't attract any course, but he dies. But but why focus? So you got four seasons. Why pick that one? Yeah, so 1972, which is the year that he <clears throat> died in October, it was not only the last uh, year, the winter season of his life, but it was a very active year for him and, and an important year um, for, for the 10 months before he before he passed away. Early that year, um, Gil Hodges died, who had been a teammate, uh, and he was at the manager of the New York Mets, and he was only 48, um, had a sudden heart attack. And Robinson went to the funeral uh, in Brooklyn, where, and, and let me just state, state Ryan, from, from 1956 when he left the Dodgers, now till 1972, basically 15 years, 16 years, he hadn't been back in a major league stadium. He may have walked in to get his equipment afterwards, but he wasn't doing anything in a major league stadium. He uh, was Robinson was not happy with the lack of progress in, in front office hiring and lack of opportunities for African Americans in the sport. He didn't go to old timers games. Um, he did when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1962. Classic Robinson embraced it, spoke extremely graciously, thanking baseball, thanking. Uh, the people who got him there, thanking the current commissioner, all of that. He was not hostile, but he was just not on board with the with the way things were going. And he was never really offered a job, which was a little surprising to me that even sort of a marketing PR job type thing, have him go and be a face to, to a certain member of your fan base. But but that never happened. So now it's the, the early spring of, of 1972, and he goes to this funeral where he – sees a lot of people, uh, former teammates he hadn't seen in a long time, um, including Don Newcomb, who was one of the very few black players who did have a job in baseball working for the L.A. Dodgers um, as a sort of kind of a job I just describing a, a communication person, a public outreach person. And he saw Ralph Branca and he saw Pee Wee Reese and, and all that. And, it, and, and Robinson, just as a quick aside, had lost his own son, Jackie Robinson Jr., in a car accident the year before. So it was kind of a tender time for him. Um, and, and he was also, at this point, really 
had had a lot of difficulty seeing he was compromised physically during during that funeral he was sort of re began to be repatriated into baseball he spoke with Newcomb Newcomb said hey maybe we can get something together and that led through a various number of channels to him going out to Dodger Stadium in LA that summer um, and participating in sort of a, a an old timer type event um, talking to the crowd being part of the scene uh, having a conversation with Walter O'Malley. By now, uh, Peter O'Malley had taken over the team, and Peter O'Malley, sort of, who was just Walter's son, said that the trading of Robinson he viewed as an organizational regret, and they kind of began to make amends. Um, Robinson then later that year would would be invited to speak at the World Series, um, and when he you look at that season, he came back to baseball, which to me was very poignant, and he was also working for the NAACP. He started a, um, an African-American construction company. He was, he was extremely involved and extremely active in the things that were important to him uh, right to the end of his life. There was no idleness in his life, even if he had to, he's supposed to not travel, but he traveled anyway. Uh, and, and so then he goes to the World Series and again, classic Robinson, he's very grateful and thanking Bowie Kuhn, who was the commissioner, thanking Kiwi Reese, who was there, thanking the, the teams uh, for having him. And then he says, I'm extremely pleased and proud, but I'll be even more pleased and proud when we have a black manager in the, in the third base box one day. That's where managers tended to be in that time. So still making a statement, still sort of agitating um, for what he believed in, but doing it in sort of a respectful way, which was, was sort of a through line in his, in his career. Um, so I just felt there was, a, there was a tremendous amount to unpack. I mentioned his, his having lost his son. So on a personal level, I was able to, and I'd gotten a lot from Rachel um, and his daughter, Sharon, uh, about that, that year and that time. So I was able to bring it, his public persona and his, his private persona. It was just really a critical, critical year for him, um, leading, of course, to his untimely death at the age of, of 53 in, in October, just nine days after being on the field at the World Series. What was the biggest surprise that you discovered writing this book? You know, I, I, um, I think that you do a book like this and a lot of things come up along the way that are su su surprising. I mentioned a few things in this conversation um, you know, about the George Sisler incident, about his relationship with different people. So particularly for somebody who had, you know, I'd made it my business even before this, but to really read all the Robinson literature I get my hands on to watch what I could watch. Um, so there were lots of little surprises. I don't know that there's a huge bombshell that he was a, a different man than he had seemed to be. But the one thing, and I'll just I'll just read this one line, which is the sort of the epi, epigraph at the beginning of the book, which is called True. Why is it called True? I say, I say, whatever the context and circumstances, Jackie Robinson remained true, true to the effort and the mission, true to his convictions and his contradictions. And he was really a man of contradictions in many ways. Um, we didn't talk that much about him politically, but he he was a Republican for most of his, his life, um, which you know he supported um, he supported Nixon over John F. Kennedy in the 1960 election, which was very controversial at that time. Um, then when Barry Goldwater came into the Republican Party and didn't sit with, right with Jackie, he moved away from the Republicans. Then he kind of came back with Rockefeller and so on. Um, he he had he had contradictory views and he owned them, um, and and it's allowed sort of different people, different segments of society to claim him, in a way, after his life. Um, and and to me, seeing that and seeing it in action in small ways and larger ways was probably the most revealing thing that came out. And and it was true also on the ball field. It applied applied there as well. Mm. What's the one question that you'd like to ask Jackie or know about him that you didn't get to get uh, discover through this process? Ooh, I mean, that's a good question right there, Ryan. I, I, I like it. Um, you know, I, I think I'd like to ask him how he felt when, when, he, when he came off the baseball field for, for the last time and was entering his next life. and that's such a such a poignant time for any athlete when when that's ending and the next 
time was going on. And, and he's at a time where because of his high profile, he was going to have an opportunity to make money. But it wasn't like today's stars, right, where you you and your great-great-grandchildren never have to worry about a job again. What was he thinking? What was he going to do? What were the pressures upon him? Um, that, that's probably what I would, would like to ask him about that tra- that moment and that transition. Okay. We're going to link to the book, of course, um, Amazon and anywhere else you have us link to it, your website. Anywhere else you want to send people to? No, that's great. Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books, uh, True is, is available, um, and certainly through my to my website and um, appreciate it. Okay. Any upcoming projects you can tell us about? Uh, you know, I, I don't have a book just yet. Thank you for asking. I'm, I'm getting, old, I'm getting close, but I'm not quite there. And there's a couple of things in the, in the hopper. So I'm just, um, I'm hoping to nail it down over the next month or two. Okay, good. Well, we look forward to having you back on when you, when you put out another good book. It's been a pleasure, Ryan. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could, drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com. Ever wonder if the deep state murdered President Kennedy? If Hillary Clinton is kidnapping babies? If the COVID-19 virus is part of a plot to turn your country into an evil dictatorship, or if Tom Cruise is a shape-shifting alien reptile. Hi, my name is Michel-Jacques Gagné. I'm a Canadian author, teacher, philosophical historian, and recovering conspiracist. I'm also the creator and host of the Paranoid Planet podcast, a monthly variety show that combines fun conversations, long-form interviews, thoughtful essays, film and book reviews, and a little bit of silliness on the subject of, well, you guessed it, conspiracy theories. So if you want to learn more about conspiracism, if you want to become a better critical thinker, or if you just enjoy listening to interesting conversations in an entertaining format, check out the Paranoid Planet podcast at www.paranoidplanet.ca. That's www.paranoidplanet.ca or anywhere you download your favorite podcasts. Until then, make sure you keep the blinds closed, avoid talking to strangers, and, just to be safe, avoid drinking the water out of the tap. You'll thank us for it later. But don't take my word for it. Ask this guy. What do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Ugh, ugh, serious crap. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny.